Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The 2016 presidential campaign has already been long and arduous with twists and turns that no one saw coming. And we're still 11 months before the general election. However, voters will actually support candidates in the Iowa caucuses two weeks from today and cast votes in the New Hampshire primary in three weeks. The big questions at this point are whether Donald Trump can translate big poll numbers into wins. And on the Democratic side, whether Hillary Clinton could lose both states to Senator Bernie Sanders. Joining us is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs and director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. All right. So let's uh, let's start with uh, the Democratic Mm -hmm. uh, debate last night. Uh, Well, there actually were three candidates on the stage, although you don't (laughs) Care much about Martin O'Malley? No, that's but, true. But uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, it was your take on what you saw last well, night? Well, it was by far the liveliest, most contentious debate. I mean, in the past, the Secretary Clinton tried to pretend. I I used to joke and say, "Is Sanders really on the stage?" Because she would try to stay above the fray. But as uh, you point out, in in New Hampshire, Bernie has a, a Sanders has a slight lead. In Iowa, he's closed the gap. I mean, it would. And Senator Secretary Clinton, I guess I'm accurate in calling her Senator Clinton too, right? Right. right. <laughs> Secretary Clinton uh, lost uh, Iowa in 2008 to President Obama, and that was a shock. Uh, and I think with the, she is not taking Iowa for granted, uh, and she's done a lot of organizational activity out there, and so is Sanders. The, the, here's what was fascinating about the debate: each one of them had a major point of contention that they wanted to use in the course of the debate. Sanders had come out with a health care plan that uh, a single-payer plan, Medicare for all might be the best way to explain it, and Senator Clinton, Secretary Clinton, could not get closer to President Obama by saying, let's keep the Affordable Care Act, let's build on it. She was the candidate last night of continuity. She was the candidate of an Obama third term. Sanders was the revolutionary candidate. He wants to go well beyond where the president is and sort of reshape not just uh, not just how we deal with how the government deals with Wall Street, how government deals with campaign finance, but I think reshape the entire economy of the country. So you have sort of two visions of America there. Uh, what we might call an ultra-left vision in terms of Bernie Sanders' admittedly socialist positions and Senator Clinton's liberal or progressive positions. And throughout the course of the debate, I think that was fairly clear. She also went after Sanders, who was pretty much on a defensive on the issue of health care and guns, where she argued, you know, he changed his position on on what to do with people who sell guns at, and the gun show loophole and, and some other things. And by and large, I thought it was by far the best debate. When it comes to the substance of the policy, Clinton is clearly the victor. I mean, she just is so knowledgeable about so many facets of government, particularly on foreign policy. When it comes to the gut feeling, you know, the emotion, the sense of passion, I think it's clear that that's where Sanders uh, has an edge. Uh, He also does very, very well with young voters. He wins them handily. But she wins African-American voters overwhelmingly, in fact, Scott, by 40 points in some polls. And once you move 
away from Iowa, move away from New Hampshire, you move into southern states in what we call Super Tuesday, and there you have a large share of African Americans that will make up the electorate in these southern states. And we're going to talk about all those things, but let me just get back to one of the basic questions. This year, as you well know, it has been so unpredictable. (laughs) If six months ago anyone would have said Donald Trump would still be standing and leading in the polls, uh, no one would have believed it. Same thing for Bernie Sanders. I mean, very early on, people said, well, this is something. He'll be gone within a month, and Hillary Clinton will be the nominee. She still may be. In fact, that's the way the national polls. She has a big lead nationally. So why is it that Bernie Sanders has done so well? Now, New Hampshire, you can explain. And Donald Trump. And also Donald Trump. I mean, there's, I think, a connection here. Number one is we find a huge number of voters in the polls that that I watch and pay attention to who are disaffected for different reasons with government, who lack trust in governments, in government. you th- They think the government doesn't work for them. And what's interesting is that a number of, of Republicans are talking about the middle class and the lag in, in income, the fact that, uh, you know, there's this inequality in wealth that has been written and talked about ad nauseum now over the last six months. Democrats and Republicans have a different way of approaching it. Republicans say, get rid of government, free us up from the shackles of regulation. And the Democrats say, let's have more government. Let's have more government action on on uh, uh, unemployment compensation, work uh, increase in minimum wage, you know, go through the whole list that Democrats talk about. So what's going on now is we have record levels of distrust anti-politics and anti-establishment feelings that conventional politics, Scott, has left us behind. And I think that's in both parties. The Democrats have less of it, but they still have it. And I think Sanders is appealing to the fact to those voters who say the Democrats haven't been able to deliver on the promises of, of the left. On the Republican side, it's as much against the establishment Republicans as it is against the government. So if you're a Donald Trump supporter, you know what you say? You've had Congress for how long? You've had you've had one house or both houses of Congress since the beginning of the of uh, the 1990s. And yet, what have you done? So they feel betrayed in a sense. The voters feel a sense of betrayal by the politicians in both parties. And that's at a level we've not seen before. And that's, I think, what's driving this sort of unconventional candidates. I mean, think about it. An entertainer right now looks like he could become the Republican nominee. On the other side, a guy who calls himself a socialist who just became a Democrat, Bernie Sanders, is nipping at the heels of the person, as you accurately point out, who we were supposed to get the crown out and have a coronation, right? Right. And it's funny because, uh, again, I go back maybe further than, than six months, but yeah, it, it was uh, pretty much common wisdom that it was going to be Hillary Clinton against Jeb Bush. Yeah. And Bush has done, oh. huh, I don't even know how the guy stays in, other than money, I don't know how you the guy it. stays in the, in the race. Yeah, you got it. He has a ton of money, and, that's, and he spent millions in these early primary and caucus states, and it's not gotten him anywhere. He's down into the below 5% in many of the polls. 
not likely to obviously he wouldn't expect him to win Iowa where on the Republican side to have a heavy cast of evangelicals who are going to vote you would think New Hampshire but look what's going on in New Hampshire for the Republicans you got Chris Christie who's virtually living there John Kasich who in a sense says that's uh, that's my firewall Marco Rubio another I'll call him a semi-establishment candidate and and uh, you have Jeb Bush. I mean, four four candidates on the quote the establishment side are hoping that's a firewall. If they don't do well there, it move they move to South Carolina where Trump has a has a substantial lead. You're, this is we're in uncharted territory here. And we're going to be jumping around, so I hope you don't uh, mind that, uh, Terry, or uh, you, the listener out there, that we're jumping around a little bit because there are some comparisons on the Republican and Democratic side. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. WITF's election coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. Now, I want to get back to uh, the Democrats for for just a moment. Um, first of all, one of the big questions, and we, we have this question every year, but this year in particular, I wonder about it. How important is Iowa or New Hampshire? Well, or Bill, I should say, and yeah, New Hampshire. Yeah, well, Bill Clinton didn't win either and went on to win the nomination in 1992. Uh, of course, Clinton, you know, lost Iowa, but then won New Hampshire. Uh the president, you know, uh, typically they matter a great deal. I'm not convinced this year, given what we're seeing uh, in the electorate, that they're going to matter nearly as much as you think. On the Republican side, more than the Democratic side, it could winnow out some of the... There are 12 candidates. I have trouble keeping track of all of them. I can't name them all without a list in front of me, by the way. Uh, Now, Huckabee, for example, has said he's out if he doesn't win Iowa. Uh, and or uh, uh, New Hampshire. Now, he did win Iowa in 2008. Uh, Santorum won Iowa in, in, I'm sorry, in in 2008. Uh, uh, Santorum won Iowa in 2012. So we basically, and guess what? They didn't win the nomination, did they? So you've got that to deal with. I don't think this year they're nearly, nearly as important as the process. Here's what's fascinating, without getting into the weeds, the Republicans are using proportional allocation of delegates up to, but not including, March 15. So they have all of these events, 12, 13 events on March 1, and some events in between. Obviously, we've been talking about the big, the, the first four, mm-hmm. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, right? Nevada, Iowa, or caucuses. And believe me, you don't even want to go there about how these caucuses oh, work. We've talked about it, and yeah, it's confusing. It as is. Well. It is. So here, think about this. No candidate can wipe out the field up to, but not including, March 15. Why? Well, if Scott Lamar is running for president and you get 53% of the vote and Terry Madonna is running for president and I get 49%, you don't win all of the delegates in play, you win a proportion of them. And so what that could do is keep Donald Trump in the 30s where he's polling. Now, I'm just saying hypothetically. Now, there are other delegates and those that get picked 
by the voters. You know, there are delegates who go by virtue of their positions. The Republicans historically had used winner take all. So if you won 50%, 3% of the vote, you got them all. Yeah, and there's some exceptions to that. And I go back to 2008. Hillary Clinton beat President Obama in Pennsylvania by 10, then Senator Obama by 10 percentage points, got 10. The number of delegates she won was minuscule. She didn't win the entire delegation, you know, the folks who were on the ballot, and she couldn't catch them. After Super Tuesday, where she underestimated then-Senator Obama's organizational activities in all of these states, she couldn't catch them uh, because the Democrats have proportionality throughout the process. So that makes a difference. Now, we're really into the weeds, but it matters when it comes to seeing how these candidates will do. So here's the one caveat to the Trump. I think you and I have when we were talking off air, said we can't, this is so unusual, Trump could actually win the nomination. I think, you know, I, th- I think we both agree. We didn't say he would. We said now it, it's a possibility. Well, proportionality at least gives a chance that we could have a, con- we could have a primary in Pennsylvania on April 26 that matters for the first time since 1976. You, you anticipated one of my questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, now, is that the, on the Republican side? Or, yeah. What about the Democratic side? I can't believe. Side? Nah, I, I, I just think uh, that's not By like By then, it. it will be. I think once you, when you get to March 1st, you got a lot of southern states and western states picking delegates where I think Hillary Clinton will get a big enough lead on Super Tuesday to end the contest. See, if you have proportionality and you get a big enough lead, it's tough before it shifts to the Northeast. Like May 5th, I mean, think of, of March 15. Florida, Ohio, Illinois. Do I have to go any further? Mm. <laughs> you see There's three of the biggest. <laughs> yeah, over. Over the last uh, 30 years, those yeah. have been three of the keys. Yeah, in, in the yeah in primary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're joined today by political analyst Dr. G. Terry Madonna of Franklin and Marshall College. We're talking about the 2016 presidential race. We're actually into 2016 now and 11 months away from the general election, just a couple weeks away from the Iowa caucuses, three weeks away from the New Hampshire primary, and a few more weeks from, uh, well, actually about a month now from the South Carolina primary. Uh, If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's take some phone calls. Jim Ininola is on the line. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Uh, it's great to hear uh, Dr. Madonna on your show again. I have a couple questions, maybe a comment uh, about uh, this topic. Uh, my, my main question for you is, do you think either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump has uh, any chance of winning the general election? I'll give you my take, and that is I just don't see how either one of them could get above maybe 35% of the general electorate. It seems to me that Bernie, if he runs against any kind of a mainstream Republican candidate, he's likely to be another McGovern. And Trump, if he runs against 
Hillary or somebody else who you might consider to be a mainstream Democratic candidate, he's likely to be another Goldwater. And I guess my related question for you is, do you think there's any chance that either Bernie or Trump might decide to run as a third-party candidate or as an independent? Uh, thank you. All right. Thanks for your call, Jim. Yeah, they're both- Hold on just a second there, Terry. There you go. Right, yeah, they're both great questions. Let's start with the uh, last question first. I mean, you, you can run in many states as an independent after we get through most of this primary and caucus, you know, the, the going through the whole process of doing filing state by state, that's not an easy thing to do. You need organizational efforts in a variety of states. And I'm and I'm reminded that it's the electoral college, not the popular vote that really matters. Forty states uh, don't matter in presidential elections. You go back six elections and about 40 states have cast votes for the same party. Uh, Democrats, 18 of them, 18 states, six elections, including the District of Columbia, for 242 of 270 electoral votes, Jim. And that means it's a, it, elections for the presidency come down to 10 states. So the, the sort of the conventional wisdom is that Trump and Sanders could not win the general election. I think you're right about that. Uh However, what's fascinating in some of in the polls that have been done, Trump actually gets about twenty <clears throat> percent of the of the Democratic vote, which sort of surprises. You told me that earlier. Yeah, blue that collar surpri- that working class. Yeah, yeah, blue collar working class Democrats. Uh, uh, he does even surprisingly well among among some voters with college. Co- you know, we all look at the demographics. That's what pollsters do: try to get a sense about the support base and why. And you do have some of this anti-establishment feeling in the Democratic Party that I not nearly as much as in the Republican Party. So I, you know, I'll stick with the conventional wisdom right now that I think it would be very, very difficult for for either of them to win the general election. And I doubt that they would go through running on a third-party candidacy. Uh, it can they could they do it? Yeah, they might have an organization. Remember, they're running. A campaign nationally, right? They have people in many states who are committed to them. Here's the one interesting thing about Trump that the polls have picked up. Many of his voters, let me rephrase that, many of the folks who come to his rallies don't vote traditionally. Think about that. What do you mean vote traditionally? They don't vote. Oh, they don't vote. Okay. Yeah, they tra- yeah they're uh, not. When you say traditionally, that was what threw me yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. You mean they, they, they have, yeah. they're inconsistent about yeah, voting. Yeah, they're, you see, you're more adept at that than I am, <laughs> at getting the phraseology out. Uh, yeah, and, well, are they going to turn out? That's why we're having they're having this debate in Iowa where, I mean, my mind boggles at seven, almost 1,700 caucuses. Oh, my golly. 99 counties. Remember, the caucuses on, Feb- on February 1 sent, send delegates to the county conventions. You follow me? It's a process that moves upward, if you will, from the grassroots. And so does Trump have the organization and will his people show up? That's the unknown. You can't rule out that they will, but that's been from the folks who have been out in in Iowa, that's what they've been trying to discern. So do I think that Trump and Sanders would have difficulty winning a general election? I'll say yes right now. Having been in the position of having been wrong, 
about Trump all along. As you and I, were, everybody, as you, as you, as you and I were talking, that we just underestimated the angst and the anti-establishment feeling in the Republican Party. Well, let me say this in the answer to Jim's question, and it's just my observation. Yeah, for sure. I would think that Sanders, even though he's not a Democrat, he's running the, as he a Democrat. Changed his party, right? Uh, I don't think he would mount a third yeah, party. I, I agree with you. Trump's ego. Yeah, you can't rule out. Yeah, I got it. I got. I don't know. I I think uh, I. I agree. You can't rule it out, and I, I think a major third party candidacy, depending on how well they would do in what states, could prove pretty damaging. Now we went through this with Ross Perot, right. and the conventional wisdom is that that Perot hurt Bush. The answer is no. All the act. There's been a lot of studies about the second choice of these candidates. Bill Clinton wins the presidency. You got it? Over the well, first Bush. Over over the first Bush, whether Perot's in the race or not. Okay. But let's go to uh, 2000. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. I mean, George W. and uh, Al Gore. Yeah. And our third party candidate. Yeah. And uh, what? And if we hadn't had a third-party candidate, particularly in Florida, and maybe I thought also in a remember Bush wins by one electoral vote. Well, he won by two. He he got 271 electoral votes. You need 270. So that's right. Uh, without Ralph Nader, that would have been guess what? That would have been a victory, probably for Al Gore. Right. Yeah. It All didn't right. matter. We're getting some more phone calls and emails, <laughs> so let's go to let's see. I want to go to Mount Joy now, and Edgar is in Mount Joy. Edgar, thanks for being patient. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to yeah, I just want to make a comment um, on what it seems like a parallel that's being drawn between Trump and Sanders, and um, just want to point out that it seems like uh, that Sanders. When we were talking about the, like the global political center, uh, especially Europe and Latin America, uh, he's pretty much center left. Uh, for example, he he aligns pretty well with Francois Hollande, um, who has demonstrated that he's pretty center left in France. He's to the right of Jeremy Corbyn and, and like the modern UK Labour Party, whereas Trump is really to the right of almost any. Western country, um, the, the main right party of any Western country, to the right of the Tories in the UK, to the right mm-hmm. of Macri recently elected in Argentina, to the right of opposition in Venezuela, to the right of um, the French opposition, to the right of almost any mainstream right mm-hmm. uh, political party. So the, the parallel that's being drawn isn't very accurate. And I think that something that I would see if uh, you guys could comment on is the fact that the center of American politics is very far to the right um, comparing to other Western democracies. All right, Edgar, thank you very much for yeah. your call. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. The problem is we're dealing with the American electorate, not with the English electorate, not with the electorate in other parts of the world. And as you know, you get these big shifts in Europe from time to time. And, and you know, because of the coalition nature of their politics, it seems to me that... Uh, it, and by the way, some of Trump's opponents in for the nomination would argue he's pretty far to the left on a whole lot of issues. Yeah, Cruz calling him <laughs> that those New York values. Yeah, the New York values and abortion and gay right. rights and some other things, and that he's been all over the all over the place. But I mean, I think in terms of American politics right now, 
we have a very polarized society. If you look at, again, the polls, they're, they're kind of, you know, Americans are, you know, support medical marijuana. I mean, you know, you got some left-leaning views. Abortion views have stayed pretty much the same over 30 or 40 years. Americans recognize climate change. I mean, you go through that, you know, it's a pretty divided electorate. It depends where you're talking about the electorate. There's megalopolis where, you know, it's decidedly liberal. The West Coast is decidedly liberal. You, I mean, it's it's a patchwork of, of, of differing views depending on your geography. But one thing Edgar's question reminded me of <clears throat> is, uh, and this does come up from time to time, uh, you know, as uh, there seem to be themes in election. I mean, in election '92, it's the economy, stupid that right. uh, you know Clinton, Clinton used over, right. over Bush. Uh, this year, that doesn't seem to be just one. Right. But one thing that you have to take into consideration, voters have to take into consideration, is foreign policy because of the threat of terrorism and things going on around the world. I bring that up because you know Trump likes to say that. Uh, I negotiate. I've negotiated for a living. I can I can negotiate with anyone, and I can win. Mm-hmm. Last night, one of the things that came up was a question about uh, Vladimir Putin and how Hillary Clinton would stand up to him. So, I guess one of the things you mean that, she has an interesting relationship with him. Yeah, that's what she, that's what she said. She had an interest in it, and I got a laugh. <laughs> but these are things that you do have to think about. Yeah, and uh, you know, I with with. Trump, if he was a traditional business person and he had negotiated, mm-hmm. uh, you look at his track record and negotiate, say, yeah, yeah, the guy's a pretty good negotiator. Yeah. But you don't know how much, much of it is uh, just uh, bragging and Bragg- true. Braggadocio. And, uh, ex- and you're not exactly. dealing with countries that have nuclear weapons. Exactly. <laughs> but no, you're right and then that. same thing with Clinton, too. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, that's a big question is, yeah. OK, how do you yeah. relate to Vladimir and Putin? And foreign policy and now has emerged, you know, the whole business with ISIS in the Middle East and the threat of terror now dominates voter sentiment in an election that, again, most of us thought would be about a big debate about the economy or, or how much have we gotten out of the depression uh, out of the great recession i think you're right the first time yeah yeah Yeah. well there are some people yeah looking at the stock market right now i think we all feel that way but you're but the other angle the other angle here is are we better off now remember that great question are we better off now than we were uh four years ago and that's a very central question that will be debated but Here's what we don't know. What happens if the Iranian and, and Syrian situation falls apart and we end up with more terror? If that falls apart, second, we end up with more terror attacks. How does that change the nature of this debate? How does it change moving forward? We don't know now. We can't predict now with any accuracy what issues are going to dominate the electorate next you know, next fall. We got 11 months. Yeah, and it's a long time. The national polls, by the way, and I hate to say this as a pollster, are meaningless. They don't matter right now. Do I think they should be done? Yeah, we want to know starting points. We want to know what people care about so we can track and trend data and change, you know, o- over time. But the fact of the matter is that until these conventions, oh, what happens if one of the conventions or both have nightmare scenarios? Okay, talk about that, because that, that is a 19, big question, how about, look, a broker the Democrats, convention. Well, we have two possibilities. One is that we have demonstrations and nightmare scenarios outside and inside the convention halls 
The Democrats had the last momentous one that literally took their party to defeat in 1968 over the Vietnam War in the Chicago demonstrations. The Republicans didn't have the best time in uh, Philly in 2000 with Bush, where hundreds of people flooded into the city. But by and large, by and large, there could be events that take place that could shape this election that we can't know. Right now, if you talk, if we're talking, we'd say foreign policy. What are your foreign policy credentials? How are you going to deal with Putin? How are you going to deal with ISIS? How are you going to deal with terror? The refugee situation is a piece of a bigger puzzle here. And so there's so many unknowns. Brokered convention. I think for the first time on the Republican side, not the Democratic side, we have a chance we could get through to Cleveland where the Republicans will meet in the third week in July without a decision, without a, a chance. I've written about it. I've, I've went back and reviewed other conventions in the past that look like they could be, you know, in similar circumstances. We just don't know. Pennsylvania has not been relevant since 1976. 1976, because of our late date. We move our primary up from, what, the third week in May or so to this year, April 26, and we're still three-quarters of the delegates will be selected before you get to Pennsylvania. You see where that mm -hmm. leaves us. So if the process, if if no candidate secures a clear edge and enough candidates stay in, we could end up with a broker. And we don't know how that will work out. And by a broker convention, just explain what you're talking about. Well, what I mean is that we get to a convention and no one has a majority of the, of the delegates, and therefore there has to be wheeling and dealing. Up, up through the 1960s, this ended in 1972, party bosses would literally pick the nominee in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms. And often Pennsylvania political leaders were involved in those discussions in those smoke-filled rooms. Uh, yeah, we don't have another time thing you've written about. We don't have candidates, Pennsylvania, but we do fill those smoke-filled yeah, rooms. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah, historically, <laughs> yeah, historically we did. That's right. So now it probably is going to have to be the candidates and their supporters who will try to make the deals because— I get a kick out of somebody said the other day, and somebody uh, actually it was a newscaster, and we, we all say things. You know, I've said many that I think, oh my, why did I say that? And <laughs> I the, do that every and day. And the reporter said, well, the Republican leaders are just going to have to decide on a not get this convention, you know, get this nomination in line. And I'm thinking, what Republican political leaders are going to get this? It's up to the voters in the states, you know, that have these caucuses and primaries. And I thought, no party is going to decide this. Party, you got it? Party right. per se. Right. It's, the, it's the candidates who now literally dominate that. It's the candidates and their top advisors who are going to make these decisions about how to move forward. And they would be involved in the decision. It could be the selection of a vice president. Ah, maybe you pick a candidate to be vice president who throws enough support right, behind your candidate to help you win the nomination. Mm. All things, 
you know, we un- a, unknown. A lot of emails <laughs> and a lot of uh, phone calls, so we'll get to those. Uh, here's a, an email. Voter turnout among young people is extremely low. However, it seems like many younger liberals are distrusting of Secretary Clinton. Could this distrust lead to younger people participating in the primaries? Could a large youth voter turnout change the outcome of the election? Uh, probably not, but and there's no evidence right now that all of a sudden we're going to see a big uptick. Uh, in general, in general, millennials uh, don't show less interest in politics than uh, age cohort than other age cohorts. But that's typically been true historically. Now, uh, President Obama did very, very well among young voters, as he did among minority voters, and they were very important to his overall coalition. But again, you, I don't see a lot of sense of activism yet that could come likely to sway an election uh, doubtful. But the point of mistrust of Clinton, it's not just younger voters. Yeah, uh, well, you're on to some because on the polls that get done, when you ask the trust question, you get 55, 60, up 60 percent of the voters who say they don't trust her. Now, obviously, far more Republicans say that than than Democrats. So she does have that trust, and that probably comes from the, you know a, the long history of the Clintons, the email situation, maybe a little bit with the Clinton Foundation for some Benghazi. All of that I think plays a role. The bigger question for me, and be nice. I don't know if any of you, your callers are are going to ask this question is. Are we ready to have one of those generational changes? Every now and then we have one. It's time for a new generation, Kennedy. And what was Clinton about? Clinton and Gore, two youngish guys, you know, you're picking someone from Tennessee and Kentucky to be president. In Arkansas. Right? Yeah, Arkansas, I'm sorry. You, you don't do that. They're not from any state that really matters. But what did they represent? A kind of new generation. You get my point? And that's the, really the argument that one Marco Rubio is making. So there you could get some of the young voters more act, you know, more, more involved with that kind of an argument. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is political analyst Dr. G. Terry Madonna of Franklin and Marshall College. We're talking presidential politics. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And uh, we have some callers who have been patiently waiting on the line. Dave is in Liverpool. Dave, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, you're there. Don't listen to the radio, Dave. Dave, are you still there? This is Dave Ritter. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Uh, I'm in Hummelstown, sorry. Oh, okay. All right, go ahead. So, uh, hi, Dr. Madonna. Um, Good morning. And Scott. Uh, My question has to do with the Electoral College, and I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about uh, your opinion on the relevance of the Electoral College and its purpose in the 21st century. All right, thank Thank you you very much for your call. The the conversation, every presidential election, but go ahead. And I've written extensively about it. I do not think we need to continue the Electoral College. It had its purpose when the founders put it into the Constitution. I don't think, you know, it had to do with preserving certain uh, situations for states as compared to the federal government. I don't think, without getting into the details of that act, act, problem with American federalism, aspect of American federalism, I think it's 
it's it, it, it's obsolete. We ought to go to direct popular vote. That's the only fair way way to do it. And uh, but you got to change the constitution to do it. And typically, small it, the the electoral college favors gives a disproportionate amount of weight to small states for obvious reasons. They have fewer members of Congress, but they also have two senators, and therefore that gives them a disproportionate share of the uh, Electoral College vote, in a sense, disproportionate share of the ability to elect a president. And, and I just think it's, there's no, no, no decent reason to keep it at this point. All right. Let, now I, I, I knew I had a day from Liverpool. Day from Liverpool, <laughs> you're on the air. Hello, Dave, you there? Well, I guess Dave couldn't hold on, but I have a he had a kind of a similar question. He said the Democrats basically won the popular vote in five of the six last elections. It just seems unlikely any Republican can challenge that. Yeah, well, the real problem, of course, is is not the popular vote; it's the electoral vote, as as we've been talking about, and I've already you know indicated that I think we ought to have popular vote, notwithstanding which party it benefits. Uh, that's not not relevant to the discussion. What's fascinating, if you look at the Electoral College victories by Democrats, they have been larger in terms of the number of electoral votes that they've won compared to uh, the Republicans. I think Bush won two, I'll be off, maybe I don't have notes in front of me, 286 when he won re-election. Ohio was pivotal there. He won 271 in 2000. We already talked about that, and obviously Florida was critical. Without Florida, it, you know, then we talking about uh, uh, President Gore. The uh, popular vote is just a fairer way. In it, think about it this way: name me another office that we elect that doesn't use popular vote that uses a device out of the 18th century, and. I just don't think the relationship between states and the federal government is today what the founders thought it was, and therefore the rationale behind it doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. All right, let's follow up on that before I get to Bill. And Lancaster, Bill, I know you're, you're there. I'll be with you in just a minute. Uh, you mentioned demographics earlier, and this goes back to Sanders and Clinton. Uh, Sanders is doing well in Iowa and New Hampshire, two predominantly mm -hmm. white States. Correct. Uh, he does very well. His biggest support comes from white liberals. You move to South Carolina. You move to Super Tuesday where— A lot Nevada, of southern states. Southern states where you have a lot, and I mean a lot, of, of African Americans. Nevada, you have uh, your first big state with uh, uh, Latino. Latino, uh, correct. Latinos make correct. A, a big difference. So— if that be the case, now, if the primaries, and that's what many pundits are looking at, is that Clinton still wins the nomination because she's going to do so well Correct. amongst those de that demographic. Correct. You're those exact, demographics. You're, you're exactly right, and that's her firewall. Should she lose Iowa and New Hampshire, that's her firewall. And remember, she has a, a huge cache of money. She has the support of the party establishment. I know that, you know— you look at the members of Congress. You look at supporters within states. Most of the of the leading officials in these states are for her. Now, unless there's some kind of change that we don't know about coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire, unless that rattles and changes the nature of what's likely to happen, 
<clears throat> and I don't think that's going to happen. It's hard to say that Senator that Secretary Clinton does not become the nominee of the party. Now here's the caveat. FBI looking into the emails now. Does that matter or will it matter? Would President Obama and let's be candid about this, that decision will be made whatever happens by uh, by the, the attorney general, and do you think that decision is going to be made without consulting the president of the United States about moving forward? I'm just hypothetically saying that there are outside circumstances that could affect these the, the nominations. Okay, well, let it, now just to follow up more on Dave's question, uh, when he's talking about how can Republicans ever win again, again, I look at demographics. After the last presidential election, Republicans said, okay, we have to reach out to Latino voters because there are so many more Latino immigrants in this country who are, who are voting. But the question he asked, with those demographics that African Americans and Latino voters have traditionally supported Democratic that, candidates, correct. if you have a large influx of African American and Latino voters in November, how can a Republican win? No, it's going to be very difficult. Remember, we're talking only about 10 states. Now, a couple of those states do have large African-American and uh, Latino populations. Florida, for example, we obviously know Latinos, African-Americans, Ohio, African-Americans. You probably win, if you go back and you look at three states, if you go back several elections and you look at Ohio, Florida, and Pennsylvania, not our state for six, but you win two of those three, you're going to win the presidency of the United States. Here's the other way to look at this, and, and you're exactly right in your assessment. The Democrats have won 18 states and the District of Columbia for six straight elections, 242 electoral votes out of the 270, without getting too much into the weeds. So when President Obama won in 2008, of the 10 states that matter, he wins nine of them. You get it? That's why he gets well into the 300, 330, 335, whatever it is, electoral votes, far more than the 270. When the Republicans win, they don't. They maybe win four or five of them. You got it, and they barely inch over. They barely inch over the two hundred and seventy mark. And so, for the Republicans to win, they're going to have to win Florida. I think Florida and Ohio. I don't know how they win without it, because of the number of electoral votes. Yeah, you got Colorado, you got New Mexico, you have Missouri. You know, we can go through some of the states. Iowa in the general election that that will matter, but they don't have anywhere near the electoral vote that three states do: Pennsylvania, Ohio, and of course Florida. All right, let's take a call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, I know you're there. Thanks for being patient. Good morning, Scott Good morning. Uh, and uh, Terry. Good morning. Excuse me. There's uh, no doubt that uh, the Donald has touched into the uh, anger of the electorate with a lot of the things he said. But this birth of baloney that he keeps on coming up with, to me, is absolutely ludicrous. When I was in school, I learned that there are three, uh, two requirements uh, to run for president, that you have to be over 35, 
and that you have to be a natural-born citizen, which is defined as being born within the confines of the United States or having at least, at least one. one American citizen as your parent. Yeah. Now, unless something has changed, which I don't believe it has, the birther nonsense from Obama and now from uh, Cruz is just a lot of BS. And it only shows two things about the Donald. He is either a blither, blithering idiot and doesn't understand the law of the land, or he's doing this and lying through his teeth for self-gain, neither of which is of uh, a characteristic that you really want in your president. <laughs> hey, Bill, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, I mean, and the latest thing with Trump is he said that uh, Cruz is a mean guy and nobody yeah, likes a, him. he's a mean guy, yeah. <laughs> that is an interesting debate. Every time, well, I'll get to the answer in a minute. Every time they have a debate, the Republicans, it's not, it's not one debate. It's Cruz now versus Trump, Rubio versus one of the other of. of establishment candidates, or in this case, last time it was actually Rubio and Cruz on, you know, about immigration. I mean, you have these debates within debates. That's what I always like. And you kind of figure out who's trying to win the other person's constituencies. So here, look, I, 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 I don't think there's any doubt, although uh, Larry Tribe, Lawrence Tribe, one of the distinguished lawyers who's actually... Uh, uh, law school professors who's actually supporting Clinton has said there's a question about it. I think the caller is right about this. I, I think, you know, that same would be true of, of John McCain. You can go through. He was born in Panama. Panama, yeah. I mean, you can. Uh, if you're born, you know, of a citizen and you're out of the country, you're a citizen. I mean, it, to, to my knowledge, it's not been challenged. You know, it's, it, Supreme Court has not weighed in. I can't believe that the state, United States Supreme Court would actually even consider this a case like this. You can see them saying, this is, here's the famous expression, a political question, not a legal question. We're right. going to leave it out there. Right. So I can't believe that they're going to entertain enter, entertain that question. Um, Chris Christie's name has come up yeah. several times in the list. I mean, I, I have to admit, I was surprised because you haven't heard a whole lot about Christie. He's been down in the single digits, but there were like three or four columns I saw last week. George yeah, Will wrote George a column, Will wrote wrote one, a column yeah. about yeah. Uh, Chris Christie. Scott Detrow, who worked for NPR, used yeah. to work here, oh, yeah. said that Christie has been the most impressive in New Hampshire. Yeah. So, Well, he's living there. I think he's given up the wherever the governor lives in New Jersey, and I think he's taken up residence in New Hampshire. Well, I mean, New Hampshire electorate, you know, is is an electorate on the on both Democratic and Republican side that establishment candidates have have done well in, and I think that this is his fire. You know, if he has a firewall, I think, or if he has any hope, he's got to win, win, win that. Uh, the problem with Christie is you've got all these questions that get raised about his governorship, about handle how he handled the hurricane, about. The situation with the bridge, Bridgegate, as it's called. There's so many questions about it, and his style, which. But wait a minute, Terry. His style is a little bit like Donald Trump. I was going to no. say his style is nothing <laughs> compared to Trump. I know. You know, I know. we'd be talk if Christie was amongst the leaders uh, in the polls, we'd be talking about his style. But with Trump being the leader, I mean, Christie is no Trump. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, you listen to him in debates, and he does have a sense. Oh, of, he's an edge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has that edge, and uh, I mean, and 
I'm a prosecutor. I know how to go after the right. bad guy, which means he can handle the threat from, you know, the terrorist threat. And you go through all of that with him. Uh, my, my sense is he's not likely to be the nominee. I, I agree with you. It's 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 New Hampshire bust. What I'm really what's really going to be curious. You go through Iowa. You go through New Hampshire. Twelve Republicans. How many of them do you think stay? Now, we know Huckabee says, I'm out of here. A lot of them are there because it's all they, you know, it's their life. I mean, I I joke and say, this is about relevance. It's about speech fees. Now, they're never going to get what Bill Clinton gets. I think I said that the last time we we chatted about it. And how about a cable contract? You know, MSNBC (laughs) has an occasional... (laughs) <laughs> conservative and Fox as an occasional liberal, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's going to be fascinating to see how many of them hang in. I think that's the key. If they can eat up 5 6% of the vote and therefore the delegates under proportionality, that's the best chance that this race goes on. We have a we only have about 2 minutes, but I want to get a Quick question here from a listener who said that uh, he thinks that the candidates should be f- required uh, to talk about who they would put in their administration, cabinet-level officials, vice president. Yeah, I mean, historically, they've not done... Occasionally, they've done these hints, and, and you know, the celebrated case of, of uh, Reagan in 1976 picking, announcing a Pennsylvania United States senator named Schweiker, Dick Dick Schweiker, who was supposed to counter the conservatism of Reagan because he was a moderate, the liberal Pennsylvania senator, didn't go so well. I think that, I mean, I, I don't know that I would agree with that. I mean, I think that's sort of the prerogative of a, of, of a, of a newly, you know, newly minted president or governor to pick their, Occasionally, you can sort of guess who they'll have around them by virtue of their, particularly on their top staffs, like their chief of staff and these other positions. But I don't, I, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, we might have the pick the nominee for VP a couple of days before the convention. That's not it, particularly if the person wraps it up fairly early. All right, I have thirty seconds. Okay. I'm going to ask you to uh, be a predictor here, just oh, like gosh. Fo- football forecasting. All right, who wins Iowa Republican Democratic side? I think uh, I uh, I think Cruz wins Iowa, and I think uh, uh, Clinton wins Iowa. All right, New Hampshire in fifteen seconds or less. Uh, Clinton and Trump. Okay. No, no, no. I want to change my mind. Sanders and Trump. Okay. All right. All right. Put me on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. G. Terry Verdana, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Coming up tomorrow, one of the big issues that we face in this country, and it's about the basics, about food, and that is another Franklin and Marshall researcher having to do with bees and why honeybees have been dying off.